everybody. I'm Patricia Duff and so happy to welcome all of you. Uh, we've got a terrific group of audience members for this very special event with um, one of our honorary board members and his uh, fascinating um, and very intelligent daughter. Um, happy to have Susan Del Percio, who was with us recently, also on the call today. And um, since we only have, we're only gonna get going and leave right at 3.45, we're gonna get right to the conversation. But we are thrilled to have Tom Rogers. He is a true media pioneer. He was instrumental in the creation of two cable channels that millions in our own country and around the globe rely on for financial and political information and news every day, CNBC and MSNBC. Um, and Tom is the former CEO of TiVo um, and now currently chairman of Engine Media, which is a broad-based sports and news content and distribution company. Um, he's also the former senior counsel to the House Telecommunications Committee, where he oversaw the FCC and media industry. So he knows of what he speaks with, with the government as well. Um, he's also an editor at large for Newsweek. And I asked Tom if he'd, he would also have his daughter with us because she wrote a very interesting piece about the millennial vote. So we're extremely honored to have Jessica Rogers Ecker here to help host and moderate the conversation. Jessica is a millennial graduate of both Columbia University um, undergrad and law school, um, and she has since clerked for a district court and court of appeals judges. Um, she's been working on both civil and criminal cases involving everything from appeals of criminal conviction and sentencing to constitutional claims, commercial contract disputes, arbitration, and immigration appeals. She practices now at Sullivan and Cromwell working on a range of litigation issues, uh, of course. Um, she's here as her own person and uh, is not speaking for her firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. Um, but we're very excited to hear her since she co-wrote a piece with Tom on the youth vote, but she's very knowledgeable about other topics. We're thrilled to have you both. Um, so thank you so much for uh, being with the Common Good today, Tom and, and uh, Jessica. And now I'm gonna pass the baton to Tom to start a, off our conversation. Thank you, Patricia, as always. Uh, great to be here. Uh, Jess, I don't think I've had uh, so much fun collaborating with you on something since uh, sixth grade science experiments. <laughs> yeah, well, I've enjoyed this collaboration with you a lot more than uh, cutting up earthworms ever was or anything <laughs> we did in science class. This uh, has been yeah, fun. You, you had some trouble with that. Well, um, what are we going to dissect today? <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Patricia, and uh, the Common Good for having me. This is very exciting. Um, we have three themes that we'll cover today. The first is based on an article that my dad and I wrote together in Newsweek, which is about how Joe Biden, hopefully with Bernie Sanders' help, can organize college students into what we called an army of social media communicators and try to amplify his message to all levels of the electorate. The second topic is about how President Trump, regardless of how wide his own social media following is, seems to be moving in a direction of defeat uh, as people do not trust what he says, uh, particularly against the backdrop of the pandemic and the issue that we need to confront and address of how Trump could try to hold on to office despite losing to Joe Biden in the fall. And this uh, was a column that you wrote in Newsweek with, your, with former Senator Tim Wirth um, and it ended up uh, within the first two days of publishing, having two and a half million readers with the likes of Susan Reese calling it a must read. Uh, and so we'll get to why that scenario is so scary and not so far-fetched. 
Um, and then the third, if we have time, is uh, we'll come back to the issue of social media and we'll discuss a third article that my dad wrote about President Trump's misuse of social media and the delicate question of how social media platforms should deal with misinformation and hateful speech, particularly of a political nature. So with that, let's uh, jump in. Uh, so Jess, we, uh, we came to this idea for the column because uh, I was telling you that I was dumbfounded about how little activism there was among young people, college campuses in particular, given how deeply anti-Trump sentiment was running among uh, young uh, people. And thinking back to my own days in high school and early college, how much college unrest and protest there was, uh, and that uh, we weren't seeing anything like that on the college campuses. They seemed uh, totally apathetic. And uh, from there, we had a discussion that started talking about uh, social media. So how, how did the thinking on your end evolve? Well, then we wrote this column uh, and it was written at the time of George Floyd's death. Um, and then once that happened, there was a huge outpouring of physical protesting of his death uh, and, and the institutional racism that caused it. Um, and that was exploding all over the country. Kind and of defeated our initial thesis that young people wouldn't go out and protest these days. They certainly showed all of a sudden we wrote this thing and as soon as it publishes the huge protests all over the place. Right, and I remember uh, expressing to you at the time the piece was being published that there was somewhat of an incongruity between the massive Black Lives Matter protesting you were seeing erupt all over the country um, and us commenting on a lack of college campus protesting the way you had seen uh, back in the 70s. And, and your theory on why there was a lack of uh, college protesting was what? Uh, well, I think that people were, for the most part, more likely to uh, get on social media and air their frustrations and air their, um, their sentiments on social media. And so um, when I started thinking about uh, how, uh, we, how people were going to need to use social media as the way to get Biden's message across, um, I started thinking about Bernie Sanders, honestly. We both did because he's someone who was brilliant when it came to his own campus organizing. Um, he had campus corp leaders that he trained and recruited for his own campaign under the slogan, when students vote, Biden wins. So particularly now when we can't have traditional campaigning or conventions. Sorry. When students vote, Bernie wins. Bernie wins, yes, yeah, sorry. Um, so we needed to, we need to harness his organizing expertise and put it into social media organizing efforts. You know, we need college kids organizing and spreading Biden messaging, not just throughout their campuses and to their friends, but using their entire social media networks, their parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, family, friends, to get out Biden messaging. So the, and, idea, the idea was, um, we knew that uh, young people's interest in protest had been, had been sparked. We knew that Bernie Sanders had done a magnificent job organizing college campuses. We knew that college kids in particular have a huge amount of time spent on social media. 
And so the issue is how do you harness all that to be a force in the Biden campaign? What could Sanders do to really lend shoulder to something that would transform the Biden campaign from kind of dull and not very inspiring to the young vote to something where he was pushing them in a direction where their social media uh, time and expertise could be valuable. That was the, that was the notion. Right. And no one is more social media savvy than college age students. And so no one's in a better position to know, for instance, what's the right platform to reach different members of the electorate on? Is it Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, YouTube, TikTok? Uh, and what's the right message for different people? Um, and I think that you have to be very thoughtful um, and, and put a lot of attention into tailoring social media messaging. Um, because you have to have a sense of what message is going to resonate with who. Um, and if we could get college kids organized and working to have their finger on that for free, it could be hugely instrumental. You know, we have some amazing Biden content out there. Take the Lincoln Project, for example. We just could not be more blessed with better produced content. Um, but Biden has really struggled to generate his own social media following. Uh, as illustrated by the fact that he has literally a hundred million less social media followers than Trump. Uh, and some have opined that that's because combative emotional messaging, uh, a la Trump, um, is more likely to generate engagement than Biden's calm, conciliatory, inspirational messaging. So for some people, an inspirational, sincere message might really resonate. For other, a clip of Trump saying something inflammatory at a press conference or during a Chris Wallace interview uh, is the best anti-Trump messaging. So Biden has never been as good as Trump at having the internet work to his advantage. And that's why we have this huge opportunity for college age students to help Biden and help democracy. Um, and we need someone like Bernie Sanders who, has, who knows how to organize college kids to focus his efforts in this way. And well, we don't have a lot of time, of course. There's only you know, three we, months we left. We don't have a lot of time. And when we wrote this column, which was almost two months ago, there was organizing time to be able to put this in place and have tens of thousands of college students, each with their social networks of hundreds of people that range from, as you said, grandparents down to their own college friends and put them in a position to be amplifiers of whatever the appropriate and relevant message was for the intended recipient. And they would know their social network and who's where better than anybody, uh, but it didn't happen. And we still have this issue of the uh, getting out the young vote. And part of the benefit of this approach was it would be a stimulus to get young people out to vote and they don't vote in the kind of numbers that, that, that uh, they need to. And where that becomes really important is when you see how Trump is conducting his campaign. His campaign is clearly hit the base, hit the base, harder, harder. And you can't imagine that there's a strategy here that's gonna work because it seems to turn off the rest of the electorate in greater numbers than he's able to uh, get any additional benefit from his base coming out. But then you look at something like Wisconsin, which I've long thought is gonna be the ultimate swing state here in a close election. And when you look at the number of people that are non-white college educated who did not vote in 2016, there are about 800,000 of them throughout the state of Wisconsin. 
when you look at minority vote in that state that did not vote in 2016, you're closer to a number of 300,000. Wisconsin only has about 6% of its population that's uh, people of color. And so you look at that and you say, well, Trump won the state by 20,000, but he's trying to mine 800,000 non-college educated people who did not vote in the last election. And relative to the minority population, it swarms the, in terms of numbers. So getting out that young vote, college educated and non-college educated, to get to the polls and vote becomes absolutely critical against those kind of numbers. Right. And that's, of course, the, the hope anticipated byproduct of organizing the young vote, um, as we described. Um, so why don't we come back to social media issues if we have time later on. Um, but for now, let's stay on the topic of the election and what you see as the truly nightmarish but not unrealistic possibility you described in your piece with Tim Wirth which obviously hit a raw nerve for a lot of people, which is Trump losing the popular vote, losing the swing state electoral vote, and yet still creating a path to remain in office. So why don't you um, explain how he could manipulate the system to do that? Well, uh, he's already laying the groundwork for that. Uh, all this talk about mail-in ballot fraud specifically tweeting a few weeks ago that China's gonna be out there trying to manipulate the election, how he's trying to draw a picture that Joe Biden uh, is uh, supported by China, soft on China, uh, that the combination of mail-in ballots and foreign interference, uh, obviously very ironic because uh, he uh, loved the idea of foreign interference in the last election. Uh, this was, uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, the ir irony is irrelevant to him here. And he's clearly creating this drumbeat that there is going to be fraud in the current election. And, uh, you know, you, you have to ask yourself if this tactic of trying to drum up more base voters to turn out at the polls uh, does not work in the swing state polls to date. Uh, so far don't look like they work. Uh, nobody really believes that the swing states are uh, breaking for Biden as much as the polling suggests. And there's probably still an under polling of non-college educated white men still, which was the infirmity of the polls in the, in the last election. But uh, he is clearly looking to lay the groundwork for a post-election chaos. And likely what would happen is we already know that because so many absentee and mail-in ballots are gonna be out there, that it is unlikely that we're gonna know the results on election night. And we're gonna be dealing with this period of what's the count, what's, what, what's, what's really going on. If you introduce into that his claims of fraud, mail ballot, foreign interference, there's a subcurrent going on that is getting louder and louder about how he believes he has emergency powers to be able to uh, mobilize when national security is at stake. We're already seeing some of these emergency power issues going on with um, bringing in federal agents in uh, Portland and now Chicago and taking an extreme view of executive powers. Well, when you introduce something like that, as Biden challenges this and says, uh, look, uh, the election was uh, 
uh, needs to be certified. I won here. This is absolute disruption intended to undermine the integrity of the election process. Uh, what we are going to be dealing with from a court point of view is court's reluctance to get involved when you're talking about national security issues and an investigation prompted by whether foreign interference went on in the election and the need to investigate that. And so the combination of them creating chaos and court reluctance to probe the executive branch on issues of national security becomes a very toxic mix. Now add into that third piece, which is playing out the clock between election day and when electors are selected. And electors will need to be selected by December 14th. That becomes really important because in District Gore in 2000, that was the deadline cutoff that the court used to say no more counting of votes. Where it is is where it is. And that's why we need to uh, be in a position to uh, uh, go forward because the Electoral College needs to meet. So as Biden challenges this, how the Supreme Court looks at this becomes critically important. So just how, how do you think the Roberts Court in particular fits into this analysis? Because Justice Roberts has shown himself to be particularly with his votes and opinions this past term, someone who is going to protect the Supreme Court's institutional role, uh, preserve the integrity of the judicial branch. So do you really think that the Supreme Court would make a ruling, even if on a procedural timing issue, that decides the outcome of the election the way it did in Bush v. Gore? Well, I think that's a great question, and I agree with you. I don't think the Roberts Court would insert itself uh, in a way, at least uh, Roberts and uh, probably could command a majority of the court here, would insert itself in a way that was as blatantly political in 2000, would stop the vote counting and gave Bush the, the election. Uh, but I do see uh, a process where they say, where, where as institutionalists, they point to the constitution and say, look, we have a, a statute here uh, that, uh, uh, gives us the time frame for when electors need to be chosen. And if electors can't be chosen because uh, there's disruption in uh, uh, the state vote count and certain electors can't be uh, um, uh, certified, and because of that, no one may have enough votes in the Electoral College, the 12th Amendment of the Constitution provides for what to do in that instance. And uh, we're not going to insert ourselves and try to uh, weigh in as to which side would win, but the Constitution provides a process where this lands in the House of Representatives um, to the extent uh, that kind of uh, decision needs to be made. Now there's, because uh, the Electoral College couldn't come to a majority vote. Uh, now What's the likely outcome there? Well, if it does end up being decided in the House. That, that's what gets scary. What the 12th Amendment uh, says is if this does land in the House of Representatives because the Electoral College is unable to come to a majority vote. And remember, Trump is going to have major support for challenges on electoral slates because every one of the eight swing states um, for the presidency have both houses of the state House and Senate legislatures in all those states are in Republican hands. And the Republican legislatures play a vital role in the certification of the electors coming in those states. So there are some issues here on how electors are slates are reviewed and opened by Congress. 
but in the end of the day, if this kind of controversy opens up and it is thrown into the House, the way the vote is conducted in the House is by uh, state delegation, meaning the majority of the House is Democratic, as we know, and in Speaker Pelosi's hands, but that's not how the vote is tabulated in this process. Under the 12th Amendment, each state votes based on uh, the uh, breakdown of, dele uh, of their uh, delegation. And the way it works today is that uh, 26 uh, delegations are in Republican hands and uh, 23 delegations are in Democratic hands and one state delegation, Pennsylvania, is evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. And so uh, even if Pennsylvania, which has uh, a couple swing districts that might change hands, were, were to flip to the Democrats, a vote in the House of Representatives for president would still render um, uh, Trump the winner on a 26-24 state delegation vote. Right. So that's a nightmare. How do we protect against this playing out? Well, uh, Senator Worth's uh, idea here, who I wrote this uh, column with, was uh, the best protection was, was sunshine. People being out there, uh, knowing about this scenario, talking about this scenario, all levels of government, levels of businesses, giving this uh, the kind of visibility uh, that uh, makes it less likely because of sunshine disinfectant for uh, Trump to be able to pull this off without a massive uprising of uh, civilian government uh, to keep that from happening. Um, you know, that is uh, one approach and I think a, a necessary approach, but it's not a fail-safe approach. What exactly uh, is the, the people's firewall that you said Americans need to build in the article? Well, that people's firewall suggests that you can stimulate enough uh, civil understanding of this to rise up and uh, prevent it from happening. I, I feel more comfortable that there are actually two House delegations that are one vote away from being able to flip from Republican to Democrat. Florida, Arizona. One seat in each delegation switching from Republican to Democrat and those delegations switch. As I said, Pennsylvania's already split. There are between those three swing states, four House seats that are essentially rated toss-ups currently in Republican hands that if they switch, make all the difference in terms of creating a safeguard here against this. So while all the time and focus is on, hey, will the Senate flip? Can we get uh, four additional Democratic senators elected to give hopefully President Biden a unified Congress and get rid of Mitch McConnell? There has to be equal attention on these four districts in these three states that could ultimately provide the safeguard protection if this does end up under this scenario going to the House and ultimately may keep this from whole scenario from developing because it would be seen that uh, how, the, how the chips would fall if it came to a House vote. All right. Should we um, move on to our, or turn back to our social media discussion on your um, third let, article? Let me, let me ask you, how do we, going back to our first discussion, how would you uh, enlighten the uh, college-age voting population about this scenario as part of uh, creating that rung of the people's firewall? 
Well, I would channel my inner Gen Zer, even though I am a firm millennial. Um, I would get on TikTok um, and I would do a 12th Amendment interpretive dance and post it. What do you think? It's a great idea, but you're going to have to show me what a 12th Amendment two-step uh, uh, <laughs> That we have to leave to the Gen Zers. They're much, <laughs> they know what they're doing. If you put it to a dance on TikTok, it'll... Uh, It'll spread like wildfire. It's a good idea. So, yeah. uh, Patricia, I don't know if uh, you want to get to. Uh, you know what? I, 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 we do. We have a lot of questions already uh, lining up here. But I wanted to. I uh, just um, taking the privilege. Um, since you wrote your piece, we've seen Trump using this um, Homeland Security Forces in a very extraordinary manner as a police force um, that is uh, looks to be unconstitutional in the manner in which it's being used. And um, I'm wondering how this plays into your scenario of, uh, aside from just being a, an irritant um, in, the, in these uh, cities around the country, uh, particularly Portland at this time, how do you see this issue, th this particular use of the forces going forward? Is this something that he could use to stay in office? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, both a pre-election tactic and could be a uh, foreshadowing of a post-election tactic. Pre-election, uh, clearly, he's trying to stimulate as much urban unrest as he possibly can. Uh, he, uh, he is trying to put uh, gasoline on the fire of uh, increased crime rates that we are seeing during this long, hot summer with a lot of inner-city people unemployed. And uh, the more he can... Uh, uh, stimulate that and uh, create pictures that look like cities are uh, burning in violent protest, uh, the more he can uh, uh, put uh, the law and order issue front and center in front of white suburban voters in a way that hopefully gains him back some ground. He's not going to turn the COVID issue around. He's not going to turn the economy around in the next three months. He's got very little by way of levers when it comes to policy issues that can turn the uh, suburban vote back to potentially looking at him with some favor, given how much of that vote, particularly the, uh, the, the white women suburban vote, he has lost. Post-election, I think it foreshadows that, uh, you know, this is uh, a guy that uh, is, is, is not going to give up office. I had a quote in the uh, article, if I can uh, find it, from Fareed Zakaria, which I thought... Uh, uh, just captured it uh, perfectly, um, where he said, Donald Trump will pay any price, make any deal, bend any rule to assure his own survival and success. And I think what the use of uh, federal agents uh, like this in an extra constitutional um, approach clearly underscores is there is nothing that he won't resort to to hold on to power and this whole issue of special emergency powers that supposedly the Justice Department has worked up all kinds of uh, legal opinions in support of the executive branch doing what it needs to at a time of crisis, particularly, as I said, if there's a national security issue that's been implicated, is something we have to be extraordinarily concerned about. And uh, that's where uh, people's firewall issues uh, come up. But to the extent those end up in the kind of protests that are violent, his use of troops or extra judicial agents at that point to 
quell that uh, protest is uh, probably more fuel for the fire that he's hoping would further make his case. It's extraordinary. I don't think we've, you know, we've certainly seen National Guard uh, go in and uh, quell uh, riots or exacerbate situations, but I don't think we've seen anything like this. Um, I want to go to uh, Morley Klausner first and then to Sean Daniel on the West Coast. So Morley, do you have a question? Okay. Hi. Um, I'm a participant on Facebook of a group called Women for Biden. And last week I posted a big concern of mine and got a slew of answers telling me there was a great idea, but I didn't get anything from the Biden campaign. And this is my concern. For those college kids not going back to campus who will be wherever they're li living, presumably, you know, with their parents on online um, classes, they're probably registered at school. And I don't think there's been a concerted effort, and that's my question, about getting those kids to re-register where they're living. Um, do you know of any organized uh, committee or whatever, either with a Democratic Party or Biden, or kids or anything, because I think we're going to lose a lot of votes. Well, Jess oh. and I were part of a discussion uh, focused on Pennsylvania in particular, uh, with some election law experts giving input to the Biden campaign. Jess, you want to just talk about that concern one sec? Yeah, well, there's the concern of re-registering, but there's also the concern of that happening, say, in Pennsylvania, a, huge, a state with a huge college age population with everything from Penn State to UPenn and everything in between. And if those people aren't coming back, there's the concern of them getting them re-registered where they are re living, but there's also uh, the, the making sure that they're not purged from the voter rolls um, and that they could vote absentee uh, as opposed to just having their votes not count in, in really key battleground states. Um, and there, I agree that there needs to be a huge effort on the Biden campaign's uh, part to prevent um, any sort of maneuvering there. Um, but I, I agree with you, it's a big issue. You know, you, they're, they're looking to deploy 50,000 people, uh, the, the Trump campaign is, to challenge uh, all kinds of things at every local election precinct. And one of those challenges would clearly be, hey, um, you, uh, a college kid registered to vote here who has gone back to live at home is no longer legitimately registered to vote and you can't count his, uh, his absentee ballot. So they gotta give some focus to this because it's uh, uh, critical, particularly uh, focusing on that uh, one of those two swing districts, congressional districts in Pennsylvania talked about Dickinson College is smack in the middle of one of them. Uh, there was some, uh, decent levels of voting coming out of that college um, in uh, 2018, and they got to preserve it uh, uh, somehow. And it's more valuable in that swing district than it is re-registering back at home. Uh, so in there is a dilemma. And we've got a question from Sean Daniel, a terrific old friend from Los Angeles who used to run uh, a big studio. Uh, Sean, do you have a question? Thank you, Patricia. Thank you very much, uh, Tom and Jessica. I guess my question builds on the last one, which is, 
the the underpinning of your uh, riveting talk today is that there is that there needs to be a people's people's firewall and that college students somehow have to hold firm with uh, registering absentee voting starts in six weeks and the election i believe is 104 days away my question is since there's not time to do either of those two things um what actually is the way to thread the needle and emerge victorious well um I'm not sure that the Biden campaign will get there. Um, I, I don't accept the notion that there isn't time to do that. Um, you know, they, th three months um, focused on uh, four or five states that are gonna make all the difference here. And two states in particular, uh, that Wisconsin and Arizona. If every state went exactly the same way as it did last time, but Pennsylvania and Michigan are flipped, which given what it looks like the suburban vote is uh, polling at in those states, my personal view is they will flip. Wisconsin's a different issue, very small minority population, much bigger non-white college educated population. If everything remained the same and Michigan and Pennsylvania did flip, if Wisconsin uh, stayed with Trump, he'd win by one electoral vote. If they lose, uh, if, if he holds Wisconsin, but Arizona flips and goes Democratic this time, Biden could still win. So I would focus all my effort on three or four states where uh, doing the kind of registration and social media organizing uh, and uh, other activities are, are, are really doable. Focusing on these congressional seats is really doable. Um, and I don't think, you know, we, we know he's going to have massive challenge and try to create huge post-election chaos. I don't think there's any way to really protect against that uh, that's fail-safe other than concentrating on those states and making sure you can hold the House of Representatives when it comes to a state delegation vote. Thanks, Sean. And thanks for all those <laughs> very popular big movies you made, too. Um, Stan Cohen, you have a question? Hi, Patricia. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. yeah we got gotcha. you. So in all this, I'm concerned more of the absolute corruption and the idea that today's news had uh, Putin uh, talking uh, to Trump, but it was in the news that he didn't talk about the uh, putting out the, 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 the having a, a conversation about the army being, uh, being paid to uh, be shot. Uh, so my question, is, and I'm sorry, there's a lot around me, so I'm not, uh, I'm not clear, but my question is, what about the absolute corruption more than the nuanced uh, chaos? I guess, I guess is easier said. Um, well, I don't think there's any doubt that there's a Republican strategy here to suppress votes. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, a form of political corruption and they're gonna do everything they possibly can uh, 
before and uh, at election day and when it comes to how ballots are counted uh, post-election day uh, to uh, suppress votes. I am amazed at how little resonance Trump's personal corruption has. This whole story that he enlisted uh, the British ambassador to get the British Open uh, golf tournament uh, switched to his uh, personal golf property uh, is just, you know, it's a, it's a non-story. It doesn't resonate. It would be enough that it would create massive scandal in any other administration. And uh, all forms of corruption do not seem to be persuasive one way or the other in terms of uh, how this election is going to play out. Uh, the fact that uh, we know that the Russians would prefer Trump to be president than Biden as president probably will mean that there's some form of mischief and uh, political activity on their part that uh, could influence the election. I don't think it'll be what Biden, that uh, Trump points to for purposes of uh, uh, what he's going to go after, because the Chinese are a much easier uh, target for his purposes, given how he's painting them and painting Biden's association with the Chinese. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the corruption is uh, something that, for whatever reasons, just does not seem to resonate as a massive political issue. Okay, John McAuliffe, you've got a question? Yes. Uh, Two questions. One is about Portland and other cities where there are conflicts emerging. Do we have any understanding of who is behind them? Um, in particular, is this spontaneous, radicalized young people, white or black, or are there operatives potentially behind the scenes or even Trump people? Uh, or a lot Trump allied people behind the scenes creating these, what seems to focus on a hundred people actually creating the confrontation. Second question has to do with absentee ballots. I don't entirely have confidence in Greg Palast, but I put a, a link onto the chat of an article he's written citing an MIT Caltech study that says that absentee ballots are politically very tilted in terms of the way they can be manipulated. So, and towards the other, towards the Republican side of the spectrum. I don't know if you agree with that and if you think that's something we can do anything about. Well, uh, I, I don't think what's going on in Portland is necessarily an example of what Jessica and I were talking about to see uh, young people interest in political protest being stimulated. Um, there's something going on there that probably has a mix of agents at work and I won't profess to, to know exactly what's going on, but uh, an awful lot of it is aimed at the Democratic mayor and it's certainly uh, not playing out as if it is uh, uh, the Democratic party uh, based uh, protest and clearly it is playing out in a way that is playing right into Trump's hands on law and order. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me that it was being stimulated by uh, forces that uh, are looking for uh, Trump to be able to do what he's doing on the federal agents being called in and 
um, maintaining that uh, backdrop for how he wants to bring it to other other cities. But I, I, there, there's something very different going on than look like the general protest over the Black Lives Movement. Um, the uh, issue of absentee ballots, um, you know, there, there are theories that Trump shooting himself in the foot by trying to talk down mail-in ballots because older people tend to vote by mail-in more and he should be trying to mine more of the older vote, which uh, is a stronger demographic for him than, than others. Uh, there uh, is plenty of evidence that suggests mail-in ballots and the difference between mail-in ballots and absentee ballots is really not that meaningful for these purposes. Many states don't have real criteria for absentee ballots, so they become a form of broad-based um, mail-in ballots, and there are some states, obviously, that provide mail-in ballots sent out broadly. And there just hasn't been yet much documented evidence that any of that is subject to much corruption. And the whole idea, having talked to uh, Homeland Security about this, of a foreign government being able to hijack mail-in ballots and getting the right paper stock and the right printing to be able to really do that in a way that would not make a counterfeit very easily identifiable to the extent it was challenged by anybody uh, is, uh, I think, uh, just a lot of unproven assertions so far. Um, so. Uh, I, I think we are going to see a huge number of mail-in ballots. The, the Supreme Court clearly didn't want to get involved in that issue. It was too close to Election Day. And um, the fact is, outside of a handful of largely uh, Republican states, which I don't think Biden has a chance of winning anyway, there's going to be broadly available absentee and mail-in uh, voting unless something happens between now and Election Day to stop that, which, which looks hard. But all that means is the counting process is going to be so delayed. We saw in New York, just the congressional races here, without any real controversy as to the process of voting, took three weeks to tabulate in congressional districts, primary voting, where the voting is pretty small. So we know a lot of the clock is gonna be run out here just on that counting process between uh, election day and and when the electors have to meet. And that's why it's such a ripe ground for Trump to be able to create the perception of chaos. Yeah, we only have a couple more minutes. And I, I wanna ask you about, uh, which I, maybe um, Jessica wants to pop back in here, about social media. Um, clearly, you know, there are people in that industry and uh, political people and average Americans were very, very concerned about uh, how that can be misused. Um, do you want to address that at all? We only have a couple of minutes. Oh, well, this is, you know, my, the subject of my dad's article and uh, an important uh, controversy that's ongoing about how to regulate social media platforms that are being used for defamatory blasts or hateful speech. Um, people often confuse that with First Amendment issues, thinking that hateful speech can be regulated, um, but the First Amendment doesn't apply to how uh, private companies deal with speech. It applies to how governments regulate speech. Um, and of course, social media platforms are private platforms. Um, and then there's this complication, which is that 
the government has by statute given social media platforms a protection against any sort of tort liability uh, and they can't be sued for what a third party says on their platform. So um, as my dad lays out in his article, there's a, a full spectrum of views that have has developed on this. Um, and, and my dad has his own view of the, the best solution, which isn't to really endorse any single one of them. Do you want to take it from there, dad? It's really that the, the Dorsey view from Twitter, the Zuckerberg view from Facebook, and the Trump view are, are all flawed. Uh, that uh, Zuckerberg's right, that uh, you can't have the social media platforms be the arbiter of truth. Dorsey's tried to make social media platform the arbiter of truth and has gotten credit for being more socially responsible than Facebook, but allowing a social media platform CEO to decide what speech is right or wrong is, is not the right answer. And Trump's answer of stripping the uh, liability shield that uh, the platforms have would uh, chill speech or his view that the government should get in there and uh, muscle people around so that his speech is protected regardless of what happens to other people is obviously not the right answer. So I suggested an arbitration process where you can have uh, a mechanism that is outside of the government hands and outside of the social media platforms hands for controversies on uh, wrongful and hateful speech, defamatory speech, to be quickly resolved through a, uh, a process where these controversies can be handled as opposed to having them in the wrong hands and decision makers who we don't want to empower uh, more than they already are. Um, it's a system that advertisers actually use when Verizon and AT&T get into a dispute about what they call each other's cell phone programs or something. There's actually a very fast arbitration process sponsored by the Better Business Bureau that becomes a non-court way to speed these things through. They got even faster when digital advertising emerged because digital advertising uh, goes away very quickly. So this process was only valuable if it could be resolved quickly. And we could, we could customize something like that to these social media controversies. And I think we need to do something because you can't not have a process for resolving them with some, uh, uh, some uh, punishment of some kind being able to be imposed. But all the suggestions of, to date have been, uh, have been pretty flawed. Well, you both have uh, given us a lot to chew on, uh, some of it not um, very happy making for, for some of us, um, and some of it rather alarming. But um, maybe the youth vote is the uh, silver lining that we will see um, that they will get engaged. Of course, what the common good is about is about engagement. So we hope that uh, that, that happens. And thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on. I hope you, you'll come back, Tom. Um, we love having you, so thank you so much. I just uh, want to let everyone know we've got some terrific people coming up next week. We'll have Congressman Eric Swalwell with uh, Dennis and Karen Meal. Uh, of course, he served on the House Committee on Impeachment, um, and he's got a lot of thoughts about uh, that and what's happened since. Uh, we'll have Jane Harmon, um, the former Congresswoman, um, who's now the director of the Wilson Center, who's just an extraordinary expert on foreign affairs and national security. And she'll be um, with uh, the former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff. And uh, we'll have our good friend, um, Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, with retired Colonel Chris Kalenda, uh, talking about how we may finally end the war in Afghanistan or not. 
and uh, we'll touch on the Russian bounty issue. So please stay tuned. There'll be a lot of other things coming up. Of course, we're happy to get your suggestions and ideas and hope you'll join us next week. Thank you, Tom and Jessica, so much. Thank you all. Thanks for having us.